Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global debate. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my articles. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. This week's edition is about India and its Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Mr Modi and his Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, swept to a crushing re-election victory last May. And since then, many observers have seen a new radical edge to the Indian government, with less emphasis on economic reform and more on the BJP's philosophy of Hindutva, an ideology that seeks to establish the hegemony of Hindus and the Hindu way of life across the country. To analyse the Modi phenomenon and how modern India has evolved since the time of its first post-independence Prime Minister, Nehru, I visited Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and spoke to the Director of Studies in History, Dr Shruti Kapila, who is a specialist in modern Indian history. Many Modi followers talk of creating a new India, so I asked Shruti Kapila what she thought Modi and his supporters mean by that phrase. So New India is a term that started circulating in Indian political and policy world around 10 years ago. And it wasn't quite clear whether it meant India in the kind of post-liberalization, post-economic reform era. But very soon afterwards, when the Modi campaign in 2014 was launched, this word circulated and acquired a power whose contents were not clear. It wasn't clear what it stood for. But I think now this is a word that has become, as it were, a code word for a new kind of compact between the citizen and the state, and as it were, the remaking of India and its constitutional arrangements under Modi, which is to say New India refers to an overturning and revision of the initial political settlement of India under Nehru. And in particular, does it mean turning India into more explicitly a state for Hindus rather than a state for all religions? So you could say three tenets of Nehru's India, uh, or the original settlement, which are being overturned. One is secularism. India stands for all religions. Secondly, under Nehru's era, the economy was protected. It was a planned economy. And thirdly, India was non-aligned, which is to say it was neither pro the Soviet Union nor America. Now, certainly all those three things have been overturned. India's foreign policy is very pro-American. Secondly, of course, India's in the age of economic liberalization, not for 20 years. But finally, I think this is where the controversy is, that it's the compact, the secular basis of the Indian constitution, which is being changed slowly, incrementally, but then also dramatically. And explain the significance of the Citizenship Amendment Act. The critics of it say it's essentially turning Muslims into second 
class citizens, the Modi people would deny that. How do you see it? So it's in and of itself, it introduces the question of religious discrimination in a very backhanded way, if I can put it like that. So what it's offering is special accelerated citizenship status to non-Muslims from India's Islamic neighbors. So only three countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, have been picked for this legislation, Mm -hmm. which makes it clear that this is about India's Islamic neighbors and the non-Muslim citizens in it. Obviously, it means Hindus, Sikhs, who are persecuted perhaps there, who are given a special accelerated entry for citizenship into India. Okay, this is a minor form of discrimination, some people would say, but it is selective given that the Rohingyas as well as the Hindu Tamils in Sri Lanka are not included. But what adds to the problem is something called the National Register of the Citizens, which is counting up Indians anew and registering them anew. And that is where the question of discrimination has been added on to this. Now, every Indian has to produce credentials, again, to prove the citizenship and to register themselves. So it's the counting up of the National Register of Citizens that together with CAA, has clearly produced this effect that Muslims are second-class citizens. And is there a concrete fear that a lot of people will lose their citizenship or be deported? So they wouldn't be, I mean, deported where is the question? So um, That's the question in Assam. Assam. It all starts in Assam, which is traditionally for more than 100 years been a magnet of both internal migration and migration from the region more broadly. But the new counting up is very clearly aimed at excluding Muslims from Assam. And this is where, as it were, the flashpoint was Assam, but then it has gone national. And meanwhile, you know, as reports are coming out from particularly foreign correspondents and other Indian journalists, detention camps are being built in Assam or even near Bombay, even in Maharashtra, even in Karnataka. All over India, there seems to be some attempt to segregate people who will then be incarcerated. Do you really think that will happen? Why else would you build large-scale detention camps? It's not that there is some official policy around as a prison of of a population. You know, it's not clear. I mean, so this seems to be related to that. But the interesting thing about the Citizenship Amendment Act and related NPR, National Population Register, is that it is for the first time after five or six years of Modi's rule that there's been a popular upsurge against him. He himself remains popular as a figure, but there's now a huge amount of restiveness across the country against it. I'd like to come back to in a minute to mm. how you think this struggle is going to play mm. out. But backing up a little bit, tell me a bit about the ideological origins of the tradition that Modi is drawing upon. Mm. Hindutva, as it's called, the whole RSS phenomenon. Where does it come from? Uh, so the RSS and Hindutva were both instituted as an idea and institutional framework in the interwar period in 1923. So it's almost 100 years old. Yet in its first 30 years, it struggled for any kind of visibility. It was seen to be fairly fringe during the mass anti-colonial movement. And its ideologue, Savarkar, uh, was a radical and who wrote a fair amount both history as well as other tracts. But it's really his word, Hindutva. And what it means is 
Hinduness or political identity for Hindus. So it's not quite religious nationalism. This is something that we need to bear in mind. So the question of religion is almost so in, it's a incidental. Thing. It's, I would say, straightforward political question of political mastery. It's a question of political mastery for Hindus because one of the tropes or one of the very popular aspects of what Hindutva is, is this idea that Hindus have not been politically in control of the subcontinent for a millennium. And, you know, so that in a way is what kind of starts this whole thing to make the Hindu as a political leader and as part, as it were, a statecraft. And, of course, Nehru and the Gandhi era was very clearly ideologically opposed to any religious content. In fact, the whole argument against Pakistan was not simply that it broke India, but the fact that they could not brook a political identity on the basis of religion. That, so Pakistan was set up as a Muslim state and yes. India quite consciously rejects that model and says, on the yes. country, we're for everybody. Yes. However, to return to the BJP, you know, the BJP and the Modi world, mm. it really becomes a democratic force only in the late 80s and early 90s in any significant uh, way. Once you have, as it were, the monopoly, Congress one-party monopoly ending in India, and initially, the idea is very much galvanized around religion and the question of the 16th century Mughal mosque, which is brought down. But Modi, when he comes to power in 2014, initially at least projects himself not in that register at all. So he speaks about developmentalism from below. It's a very aspirational. It wants to tap into the very young population of India. So it's very, very much around economy, and you never heard the word Hindutva very much in that campaign. Modi in 2019 is openly a Hindutva figure. This is when he wins his second mandate, but he campaigns. Do you think it's clear in the second election campaign that he shifted gear? Absolutely, absolutely, including the manifesto and the run-up to the election, which was the second election in 2019. It was, and also even in his first term, he had begun to posit the question of a very kind of aggressive nationalism. So dissent, any kind of dissent, any kind of political criticism of the regime was couched as anti-national. And it's really in early 2019, a few months before the second general election when he wins, when you have, as it were, a flashpoint with Pakistan, that the question of Pakistan, anti-Muslim, you know, those sorts of themes become very, very, they come to the fore. Okay. You know, you are a historian. If you take a step back, mm. you describe this thing that starts as a sort of fringe ideology mm. in the 1920s, mm. which isn't really going anywhere, mm. which doesn't have a a big influence on the state for the first 50 years of its existence. Why now? Why has the themes that Modi is pushing, which have been around, why does they suddenly appeal to so many Indians? That's a very, an excellent question. I'm not sure if I can answer it adequately, but I can sort of give you some of my hunches. One, I think we have to accept that this is an outcome of democracy. This is an outcome of mass democracy and competition. Secondly, as a lot of good anthropologists have said, there is also the way in which violence has been mobilized for the last 20 years by, as it were, the right wing, by the Hindu nationalists. That has also aided the rise of the BJP. And I'm now referring to very fine-grained work done by scholars around, say, the campaign on the coming down of the mosque and all the way back 20 years ago, 
And thirdly, I think that's a universal global phenomenon. There is this idea that the liberal establishment has been too entitled and it has only reproduced itself. And Modi's initial victory in 2014 was also on the back of a very strong anti-corruption campaign. So it's part of, as it were, the creation of new sets of elites globally, a rising middle class, which is more broad-based as opposed to the few highly select groups in India who could constitute the middle class. And thirdly, there is no denying that the first-time voter, who is a very significant chunk of the electorate in India, is very pro-Modi. So in a way, there is this idea of him approaching the future with an aggression for India, which chimes with the young. And so it's neo-nationalist, it's aggressive, it's about India's place in the world. So in a way, the the first-time voter who's 20 now has no idea about Nehru too. So there's also an amnesia about where modern India has come from. So all they know is really the story around Congress decadence almost towards the end. So some things are global here, a populist appeal. And Modi himself attracts a lot of attention precisely because he's seen to have none of the vices, if I can put it like that, or the temptations that family men tend to have. So he has no children, he has very little property, so he seemed to be someone in the mold of a sacrificial figure, and that appeals too. Right. So to finish, that answer in a way suggests that Modi's caught the wave, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time, but you were also pointing out earlier that there's now a big pushback. Mm. You're a historian, so you write Mm. about the past. But if I can invite you to speculate about the future, Mm. how do you think it's going to play out now? If there is a moment that can be seen in the kind of recent history of India, I would uh, say that this moment is comparable possibly to the early 1990s, when the Congress had lost monopoly and India went through a large number of governments swiftly for about a decade and the rise of coalition politics, large number of regional politics. And it's really after that the BJP arrives as a national party. And that reflected a huge amount of social flux in Indian society. And I think we are back there. But we don't have in India at this point a significant opposition well-networked opposition, uh, because Modi really did finish off as competition at the national level. You're beginning to see opposition coming from, you know, at the provincial level. And Congress still bizarrely remains significant because a large number of people have voted for it. So it has a big vote share, but not a large number of seats. A lot will depend how the opposition galvanizes itself, but a lot will also depend what happens globally. So were Trump to win, this kind of, as it were, neo-nationalist, strongman politics will be reinforced and Modi will be, I suppose, in a more comfortable global club. But if the American world moves differently, I think that will also help. I'm not saying Indian democracy is decided in America. It will galvanize also these protests in India. It'll change the global atmosphere. Absolutely, because Modi's policies have not been criticized. They may have been criticized in the opinion pages, but uh, no government or no multilateral, no one has actually questioned him. So he's also part of that global shift in terms of whether it's immigration in Britain or whether it's the wall in America. He's part of that same story. Uh, His policies are part of that global story. That was Shruti Kapila ending this week's edition. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe, you can do so in any podcast app. 
Just follow the link at ft.com slash Review. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.